The following is a presentation of the Belly Up Sports Media Network. Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we'd go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. Coming up on the Behind the Mic Podcast, being a trailblazer isn't easy, but someone had to be first. When professional football began, there were 17 African Americans that played pre and post NFL. Let me tell you about some of them. You're behind the Michael Michael Neal Jr. All right, it's the last day of February. It is the 28th. Tomorrow is the 1st. And if you're listening to it, it is Wednesday, March the 1st. Make sure you pay your rent. NFL historians and lovers of sports history welcome in to show us for you guys and gals. It's cool if you already know this stuff. Congratulations to you. But there's always someone else who does not. So this show's purpose is to provide information for those who don't know as much about NFL history. So we're here to do three things that is enlighten, teach, and learn. It is the Behind the Mic podcast. I am your host, Michael Neal Jr. This show is presented by Belly Up Sports, the Belly Up Sports Media, Belly Up Media, Belly Up Sports Podcast Network, also BellyUpSports.com. Go to it, click on it, read the articles, listen and check out the shows, especially this one. And you can catch all of them, including this one, on our new, new home base of Megaphone. And also all the great favorites, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. So this Sunday, I was bored out of my mind, was flipping through the channels after we had dinner, and I was kind of sitting on the couch half asleep, and I said, all right, let me check something out on TV. It's almost 6 o'clock, and I'm going through, and I see on NFL Network, there's a special on Fritz Pollard. We've talked about Fritz Pollard on this show. It's a historical show. We understand that, you know, this is the close of Black History Month, this last day of February. I don't stop on, you know, February the 28th. I don't even start on February the 1st. I get my Super Bowl stuff in, and we do a show about the Super Bowl and uh, or in and around it or whatever interests uh, or history around it. But I'll continue on into March. Doesn't matter. But seeing that, on Sunday, uh, I st- immediately, it was towards the end. It was like nine minutes left, I think. And uh, I decided, oh, can I record it? Nope, let's just go ahead and watch it from the beginning. And I did that. I was so happy to see this. And it, apparently this was made, I think, in 2020. Um, and it was, what, NFL 360. And it was a uh, Fritz Pollard, A Forgotten Man, which uh, there's a, so much history that is not known and just talking about sports history and I'm just going to keep it at NFL history especially when it comes to minorities and it's great after watching that special seeing that stuff that I I pretty much already knew and then learned a couple of other little things um hearing Art Shell because it was hosted by Nate Burleson and he's got him on camera he's going uh, to the Smithsonian and and a lot of different places, and they and there's a cameraman with him, and he goes to Art Shell's house at one point. Art Shell, who's a Hall of Fame offensive lineman for the Raiders, and was technically the first African American coach. Both he and the uh, talk that that Burleson had with Tony Dungy, who was uh, supposedly the first 
African-American head coach to be placed in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. These two both acknowledged that they were actually number two. They said Fritz Pollard was number one. Fritz Pollard was actually the first head coach, even though he was a head coach with LG Tobin. We'll talk about him a little bit uh, later. Uh, Fritz Pollard was actually the first African-American quarterback. We've talked about that before. Um, he's actually the first head coach to be in the Hall of Fame, even though he was posthumously, I can't say that word good. Please don't laugh at me. Posthumous, how you say it? Posthumously? He, all right, he's passed away. He's been put in the Hall of Fame after he died in 2005. And technically, I mean, he was put in as a halfback. That's the position that he played. But he was lining up behind center and was the first African-American to play quarterback in pro football. So they both say that they're number two. Dungy and Shell acknowledge that they're number two. But what's even more is how Shell talked about when he and his teammates had a preseason game. I believe they were in Canton. They went to the Hall of Fame. They see He sees a display, hits a little button. It's talking about Fritz Pollard. And it's like, oh, my God, come over here. Eventually, he's like, he's hitting the button to hear more information. He did not know about Fritz Pollard. And this is an office of lineman that played late 60s going into the, eight, uh, the, late, uh, the early 80s and uh, did not know about Fritz Pollard. There's a lot of things that are unknown. And some of the guys we're going to talk about in this new series I have is a two-part series. Today's day one, or the uh, show number one on what I'm calling 17. The first 17 African-Americans that were in professional football. You have four pre-13 post, all right, NFL. And, you know, it was just amazing to see that. And even in my reading and all the books that I have uh, and the, the things that I've watched and the things that I've heard and seen with my own eyes, I'm happy over these past, what, two years, more than two years I've been with Belly Up and doing the show now on, uh, after about, what, five shows, I started doing it on NFL history, which is my passion. And then as I've learned things myself and seen some things and elaborated on some things, I, I, it's just amazing how much a lot of these players, uh, some past and, and many present, do not know about NFL history. And then when it comes to minorities in pro football, it's even less, whether it's college or pro. And one of the guys that was really a relatively unknown and did not get any kind of um, someone digging in the early 70s was actually the first African-American professional football player. Charles W. Follis. He was a halfback for the Shelby Athletic Club. I refer to him as Shelby AC for you soccer fans out there. So let's talk about Charles. So he was the first tech. He was not technically. He was the first. He was out of Wooster High School in Ohio in 1899, and this is how dominant his team was. They were outscoring their opponents 122 to zip zilch. Zero, nada, nil, nothing. I mean, it, that's that's amazing. Uh, no matter what time period you're playing in. And then after that success in high school, he moves on to the College of Wooster. But he did not play football for that college. Instead, he played for the Wooster Athletic Association amateur team. There's a coach, the manager, Frank Schiffler, that seen him playing with Wooster and ended up uh, having him come over to the Shelby Athletic Club in 1902. Now, he hadn't been paid yet. As far as the records, no, okay? And uh, he actually got 
fall us a job at the Howard Seltzer and Sons hardware store. And he's doing that and, and then he's able to work, he's able to practice, he was able to play. He was also a great baseball player. And if you listen to the show long enough, even going back to last year, we've talked about this as well. Branch Rickey, baseball fans know him. He's the man who made the move to get baseball, pro baseball integrated, Major League Baseball through not only the signing of Jackie Robinson, but him being moved up into the LA Dodgers organization. And Branch Rickey was a football player as well. He was a teammate of Fallis on Shelby AC back in 1902 and 1903. Now, Fallis didn't stop with football. The guy was a great baseball player as well. Even after his career was over, he continued to play a little bit. Um, he, was a, he was a catcher of note. So, uh, but Ricky said of Fallis that he was the best halfback in the entire state. Well, then it was time to get paid. September 15, 1904 is what the records show. He became the first African-American officially to be a professional football player. He was the first one to sign a contract. And that year, they played 10 games. Shelby averaged 31 points a game. They only gave up 28. But it was to one team, uh, Massillian in Ohio. They beat Shelby AC 28 to nothing. <laughs> so, okay. But... That's all. There's two things of note there. Foss didn't play the first half, the entire first half. Nobody knows why. But you also need to know that Massillian was the best team in the league in Ohio. They won five championships between 1903 and 1907. They were undefeated three of those seasons. Hmm. So being black, being an African-American, being a minority in America, uh, obviously was tough. Um, uh, being a woman uh, is tough. Uh, but uh, in those times and he took a lot of physical and verbal abuse and it affected him both physically and mentally I mean physically mentally and emotionally opponents were literally beating him up after tackling the man you have to understand this how tackling was done back then I mean it was almost a fist fight uh, and tackling then is not the same as tackling now once you hit a knee hits the ground he's down. no 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 some guys were able to get up at one point and when your forward motion was completely stopped, I mean, dog pile, you know what I mean? And this guy was being given the business at the bottom of these piles. I read in one portion of a book where, you know, he, uh, I think his shoulder was was popped out of place or something like that. He, no, he, he suffered torn ligaments in his shoulder. Um, didn't stop him. I mean, he was hurt, uh, but that was part of football. I mean, even in college, going back to the 1800s over into the 1900s, there were a lot of deaths in football. There were no helmets. Uh, we're not even talking about leather helmets yet. So that tells you the times that they were playing in. Tackle football was for real. Uh, words and knuckles and knees is how Charles K. Ross described it in his book, Outside the Lines. Very good book. And Ross also shares a snippet from the Toledo Evening News B about a game in November 1905 against Toledo. And it was the local newspapers that put a lot of this information out. If these guys are not writing about it, we don't know about it. We probably do not know about any of this stuff. But in this situa situation, the captain of the Toledo team, Jack Tattersall, stopped the game because the verbal stuff was getting a little bit too much, even for the opposing team. And he stopped the game and literally had to tell the crowd 
not to call Fowler's the N-word. Now, I'm not going to repeat exactly what he said. He said, that he, quote, he's a gentleman and a clean player. Please don't call him that. Everything stopped after that, at least for that game. So you have some people that have to kind of come step up and put a stop to something at, at some point or at least pour some water on that fire. And that stopped it for at least that game. Amazing story later on uh, that, that I read, did not know, I'm like, oh my God, really? But I'll take his word for it. But anyway, 1906, Shelby AC went from amateur to professional team and they changed their name to the Shelby Blues. Now, Follis's last game was a 0-0 tie against Franklin Athletic Club where he was helped off the field with a leg injury, pretty much ending his football career, all right? And after playing professional black baseball with the Cuban Giants, which, you know, he continued that, uh, he actually passed away at the age of 31 in 1910. And I quote from Ross's book, um, in a 1975 interview with his sister-in-law, Florence Follis, recalled that after an April game, he, uh, he took a shower and Follis sat on the porch of his Cleveland home for a couple of hours before beginning to shake. He was eventually rushed to the local hospital where he died of pneumonia. Very, very sad. Now, for years, no one knew Charles Follis' story. And according to ProFootballHallOfFame.com, and I'm going to have to quote this too, in 1975, researchers John Seaburn and Milt Roberts found articles written by local newspaper, the Shelby Daily Globe, which is the base for a lot of information on his career. And it was well documented that this local newspaper, especially the day after Fowler's signed his first professional contract. So... You have these things, and that was uh, on September 15th. They wrote, the story dropped on the 16th. So there's a lot of things out there um, that I think we don't know yet. Now, I'm not going to give you details on some of these guys because it simply, I haven't found it yet. But I'm going to give you as much as I can going forward. Well, the next professional was one Charles Doc Baker. He was a halfback as well. He played for the Akron Indians. Um, from 1906 to 1908 and then he went away for a couple of seasons and came back in 1911 and that was it there's not a whole lot known about Doc Baker but he did earn his nickname because he worked with a physician in Akron Ohio but it was said that Baker was the Indians best player on both offense and defense playing every down but his short time was somewhat marred by a gambling scandal of the at the time didn't have anything to do with him or his team but allegedly the Canton Bulldogs, who were among the best outside of Massillian, threw a game against Massillian in 1906. At the end, I mean, fans just stopped coming or showing up on a regular basis. Um, what does that mean? No money. And according to Ross, Doc Baker may have left professional football because of it. I mean, you're not getting any money. Now, again, you have games that are played not with television or radio or on the level of college football. Right. This is small time, you know, out in the backyard type football, right? I mean, even though these guys are serious, seriously playing and they're getting paid, but they're getting paid. Imagine, if you will, if you have a child in middle school and you're paying, you're putting money in, um, you know, some of them, they're using the little phone apps now, but you can get your, you know, a couple of dollars out, $5 here, $10 there and or whatever it is. You know, to pay for everybody to get in the game. Here's $3, $4, you know. That's the money that's going to be gathered and paid to the team. 
And if there is no money from people showing up, you get very little or none. So that's the way that it was in professional football at the time. Next up was Henry McDonald. He was another halfback for the Rochester Jeffersons from 1911 to 1917. And this man, um, you know, for, for the longest, I mean, let's just put it like this, pre-NFL, he had the longest career. Haitian born and adopted by the Canandigua, New York family. Now, before he played seven years with the Jeffersons, he was first a running back for the Oxford Pros in New York. They called him the motorcycle. He earned $25 a game. Um, and he said, this is the surprise for me. He only had one racial incident in his career during his playing years. In the 1971 interview, McDonald spoke of this incident with the Canton Bulldogs. And we've talked about this before in, past, uh, in the past shows. Earl Greasy Neal, who was a Pro Football Hall of Fame uh, man as a coach, I believe it is. McDonald goes to tackle him during the game. Now, they're playing against Canton. Canton has Earl Greasy Neal. They got Jim Thorpe, who was the greatest athlete of the time, right? He's the Olympian and all of that, right? And uh, I guess he took an exception to McDonald making a tackle on him. And remember, it was rough. He needed to bring him down with a little bit of oomph. I don't know exactly what happened except to say that McDonald said the guy jumps up in his, in his face. Neil has his arm cocked back and he says, black is black and white is white. Where I come from, they don't mix. Yeah, the guy was a racial, he had some race issues. <laughs> Let's just call it that, all right? Jim Thorpe steps in and says, we are here to play football. And there was no issues after that. And he says that that was the only incident that he had. I'm sure that every NFL player, every professional football player, every athlete that took a field had this uh, testimony that this was the only incident that he could remember. Now, McDonald was in his 80s when he did this interview, but I'll take him at his word. We'll get to those issues in a second. There's one thing I thought about while studying you know, the show. Uh, like, Jim Thorpe, who was a Native American, he did have some issues of his own, you know, with people. Uh, but he was as widely respected as anybody. Um, didn't really think about it. And he's like, well, he was a minority as well. Um, he, he was the greatest athlete of the time. He was a superstar. And the man was involved in many, 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 many different sports. And, uh, and that's probably why. But he was allowed to play and compete and do many things that most African-Americans just were not able to. Well, go figure. All right, in 1915, we have another case of, well, let's just say there's a background to this. But Gideon Smith, his given name, but they called him Charlie Smith. He was a tackle for the Canton Bulldogs in 1915. McDon um, and Smith, he graduated from Hampton Institute and also from Michigan Agricultural, which is now Michigan State. He only suited up for one game. There's a reason for that, and there's also a reason why they called him Charlie. His real name was Gideon E. Smith, and he used the name Charlie as an assumed name. Why? Because in those days, if a guy wanted to play a game or two with a professional team as a college athlete, they would change their name. And so, you know, also noted he graduated from Michigan State in 1916, hence the, uh, the name change. I mean, he was still playing, he was still going to college at the time. 1915, though, was not a kind year to African Americans. 
Charles Walls, uh, he writes oh, that Outside the Lines, if you don't have that book, you need to buy it. Outside the Lines, written by Charles K. Ross. He notates the times in which blacks were living and what was going on at the time. You got a, a president who was Southern born from Virginia, Woodrow Wilson, who was a supporter of racial segregation. It also did not help. You got a director by the name of D.W. Griffin that re released the racist film, The Birth of a Nation. If you don't know what that movie is, it was a silent film that was like over three hours long starred what Lillian Gish and it was a movie about the American Civil War that glorified and portrayed the Ku Klux Klan as heroes speaking of which uh, according to the Britannica all right the Encyclopedia Britannica the Klan had all but disappeared in the 1870s but all of a sudden you got a preacher by the name of Colonel William J Simmons he started a new era of the Klan through some cross burning in Stone Mountain Georgia which led to a reported 56 blacks being lynched that year. It also doesn't help. The civil rights leader at the time had passed away. Booker T. Washington got an empty space. And it's also to be noted, right, that Smith was the sole professional football player at the time in 1915. He only played the one game, right? Uh, excuse me, that McDonald, not Smith, McDonald in 1915, he was the only one. And it'd be what, another four years and five seasons until the next one came through, but he was a good one. <laughs> Frederick Douglas Fritz Pollard. Pollard played from 1919 to 1926 with four different teams, two, uh, two stints with the Akron Pros. Uh, Fritz Pollard was the first African-American superstar in football. One day we'll do a full show on him, and we'll give you all the details on that. But I remind you of the time. College football was king. Pro football was played on a farm in front of your family. Okay? <laughs> Again, go watch the movie Leatherheads. You'll get the picture. Pilot had a long road to get to stardom from, you know, coast to coast. But college football is what did it for him at Brown. Great halfback at Brown. He was the first African-American halfback to be named to a backfield position for the uh, everybody wanted to be on the Walter Camp College Football All-America team and he was first team as a halfback okay um, and he was the first to play in the Rose Bowl all of that right well one thing you got to know is that once Pollard did turn pro and you know that same team that Doc pa uh, Baker had played with eight years earlier Pilot would join them, but the name had been turned, uh, changed rather, from the in Akron Indians to the Akron Pros. The Indians had went out of business. Then comes the great year of 1920. The APFC, which was the American Professional Football Conference, then changed to the APFA, the American Professional Football Association. This was formed at the end of World War I through George Hallis and Ralph Hay. Jim Thorpe was named the league's president. The first professional football league had been formed. And pre-NFL, they kicked off on September 26, 1920. And by the end of the year, Pollard and the Akron Pros were crowned champions. Actually, the next spring. But they had a record of 8-0-3. A lot of firsts with Fritz Pollard to go with his college successes. Again, he was actually the first African-American head coach. And he was co-head coach with one LG Tobin. But Pollard was calling the shots. He was the one basically running the offense and putting people 
uh, as far as substitutions and stuff goes. So, yeah, he was the head coach. He was the head coach. Learned that through that NFL 360. Uh, Fritz Pollard, a forgotten man. Learned that through that. There you go. And technically, again, he was the first African-American quarterback. He did line up behind center, you know, not taking snaps directly from center, but that's not how they did it. Paul Robeson was up next. He played with the Akron Pros as well as the Milwaukee Badgers with Pollard. Pollard played on both of those teams with him. You may or may not, you may or may not have heard of Paul Robeson. Robeson known more of a Renaissance man. He was an actor and a singer and a lawyer and a political activist. But before that, he was a standout athlete as both an offensive lineman and later an end or receiver for Rutgers. Rutgers, as well as Brown in the Ivy League, they, they were the teams. They was like That was like going to Alabama or Ohio State or Clemson or something like that. Those were the teams back then. And Robeson was named to the Walter Camp first team at the end of the 1918 season. He was six foot three, 220 pounds. He was recruited by Pollard to play with the pros in 1921. And the two had played against each other in college. Uh, Brown beat Rutgers 21-3 back in 1916 in October that year. But these are the perks of being a co-head coach or a head coach. Uh, in their two seasons together with the pros and with Milwaukee, they compiled a record of 16-3-4. That's pretty good. The new league was renamed the NFL in the summer of 1922, June 24th to be exact. That would be Robeson's actually final year in the league and quiet as kept. Robeson was actually attending Columbia School of Law while he was playing pro football. So he obviously had plans and made the money that he needed to pay for school and to further his life going forward. And just keep in mind, a lot of these guys who we're talking about, you would be amazed at their backgrounds and what they went on to do later on in life. I mean, Pollard started his own business, and even after pro football, he started his own team, his black team called the Brown Bombers, and they played going even into the 30s. They was trying to get a, a, a black place to play. There was even another pro football league you know, that was started up by blacks in, uh, I think it was in Virginia. I just read that today. So, you know, they, but they did some great things business-wise and, and, uh, and in activism, they were important people and they lived long after their playing days. And some of these years, you see they're only playing one, two, three years, maybe six at the most. But it's to be noted that these guys were definitely pioneers and they had plans after football because football wasn't everything yet. It wasn't what these guys think of it as now, right? And so by the time Powell's final year, speaking of which in the NFL in 1926, the NFL had went from around what, 14 teams to a high of 22? The first year of the NFL, there were only two black players in the league out of 14 teams that actually averaged 20 players apiece. Fritz Pollard was one, and the other played for the Rock Island Independents. His name was Robert Marshall, or Rube Marshall. Now, while Charles Fallis was making history with Shelby AC, Robert Marshall had been an All-American at the University of Minnesota back in 1905 and 1906. He played semi-pro ball before his NFL years, and he actually didn't know this. Um, he was actually the oldest NFL player when he retired in 1925. He was 45 years old. Now, guys didn't go to college when they were 18 necessarily, okay? They didn't graduate when they were necessarily 20, 21. 
you know, I mean, they, they, they started their lives a little bit differently and the ages was a little bit different. He was 45 and he played for the independents from 1919 to 1921. But there's a trend that I noticed over this past weekend. And you guys know my favorite book, America's Game, the NFL at 100. There's a chapter, chapter 12, that's called A More Colorful Game, A Better Game. And it tells you straight up what the trend was. And I'm quote from the book. It says a combination of other factors was at play. Two, all, uh, all of which are limited openings for black players. The college game dominated then. And as there was a little media, very little media coverage in the black communities, uh, potential African-American players were not as aware of the pro league. Also, the main recruiting grounds were primarily the white-oriented universities where a few blacks played. Two notable exceptions, Fritz Pollard, saying Pollard and Robeson. Fritz Pollard played at Brown, Robeson at Rutgers, two powerhouses. White owners and coaches were not seeking out black talent. And the trend was simply this. Black players who played at white universities were getting a shot. Not only that, if you were on the All-America team, you were really on the map. So just look at the Walter Camp College Football All-America team. If you were on it, you were probably going to get a chance to play pro football. Even though it may have been slim, it was. Now, William Henry Lewis, who was the first African-American named to a Walter Camp team, <laughs> he didn't get a chance. But keep in mind, first doesn't always mean the best, but at least you got, you know, in the door. But Gideon Smith, he was the first African-American at Michigan State. Remember Kenny Washington and Woody Strode? They played uh, in 1946 when they reintegrated pro football, as was the AAFC's, the Cleveland Browns players, Bill Willis and Marion Molly. Willis played at Ohio State, Washington and Strode, UCLA. So many, many more players did this, uh, and they were passed over. A lot of players were passed over. Understand this, I'm not giving the NFL any wriggle room for that time, period. But in order to compete with college football, it did need some names. It needed some star power. Pollard was one of those stars. He was known coast to coast. He was famous. And he was one of the first ones to get in back in 1919 going into 1920. And you had Jim Thorpe. They made him the president. Star power. Star power. Um, they had to compete with college football. The pro football was looked down upon, remember? So you got to be able to compete. So the NFL was not high on anybody's sports list at any time. They were not pro baseball, and they were definitely, uh, you know, they were not college football. So, all right, another one. 1922 played with the Hammond Pros, John Shelbourne. He went to Dartmouth, and he was a record-setting sprinter at that Ivy League school. 5'11", 200-pound fullback for the football team as well. He also was a head coach the year before he got into the NFL in 1921 at Lincoln University. I believe that was in Pennsylvania. And the squad had an 8-1 record. So he had some coaching chops as well. He was a fullback for that one year, but he left the, uh, the pros after that one year, left the league by choice to take a teaching position at a high school in Evansville, Indiana, Indiana in 1923. Now, this guy I know nothing about. One day I'm going to find something out, and if I find something out between today and then next Tuesday going to Wednesday, I will give you more. James Turner, who went to Northwestern, the fact that he was in the books lets me know, okay, 
Somebody knew about him. His name was on the list. He played with the Milwaukee Badgers in 1923. So, again, you got local newspapers and, and those who was covering things at the times. It's out there. It has to be out there. And I'm going to find it. But in 1926, a 32-year-old Fritz Pollard was planning on retiring anyway. But, and I quote Pollard, he said he never counted on being fired. He finished his career with the Akron Pros on that second stint and was released as a player and coach because he, quote, failed to play up to the form expected of him. End quote. Hmm. Well, okay. His NFL career was over after eight seasons, but Pollard would accomplish much more, so much more in his lifetime. His release was a sign of things to come down the pike for other black players who would come after him. In 1926, at the beginning of that NFL season, there were a league high five black players on NFL rosters. By the end of that season, there was only one. And then only four more blacks would enter the league through 1933. Red Grange, the Great Depression, and a racist owner had a lot to do with it. That's it. References, thanks to ProFootballReference.com, also NFL.com, NFL Network, ProFootballHallOfFame.com, Black History 365, Britannica.com, Arc on uh, the Birth of a Nation. Well, that film. And also a couple of books, some really good ones. The League, How Five Rivals Created the NFL and Launched a Sports Empire by John Eisenberg. A Hard Road to Glory. He's got a great series of books, did Arthur Ashe. Man, uh, the African-American athlete in football and also the African-American athlete from 1919 to 1946, uh, written by Arthur R. Ashe Jr. Also, Outside the Lines, buy that book. African-Americans and the Integration of the National Football League, written by Charles K. Ross. That's R-O-S-S. And also, Rise of the Black Quarterback, excellent book what it means for america by jason reed this has been the behind the mic podcast i'm your host michael neal jr again this show is presented by belly up sports belly up media belly up sports podcast network bellyupsports.com go to it click on it listen watch the shows and catch us all on megaphone especially this one behind the mic all right behind t-h-a-m-i-k-e also, you catch us on all the favorites, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. You have no excuse. If you don't listen to my show, I'll find your house. I'm out. <laughs>